Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane, and in the studio with me, bouncing around, is Dr. Jen. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I am bouncing because I heard you were going to only play 80s music from now on after the fun we had in the studio during Radiothon. <laughs> and, you know, I'm a big 80s music fan, so I'm feeling, I'm feeling very pumped. Well, you have my word. I'll play nothing but 80s music. For what me. have you got crossed? Fingers, um, toes. Yeah. <laughs> and all the CDs I've already put in the CDs. For the younger listeners, CDs are what we used to record music on that we still have some of here at Triple R. But um, We do. Yeah, yeah. We're cool. Yeah, we're cool. It's all about being retro. We're, speaking of retro, uh, <laughs> it's always a good segue to Chris KP. Good morning. Hello. <laughs> it so, happens no matter what, does it? it? Well, it can happen no matter what, yes. Yeah. Yes, certainly. I'm happy to be segged into anyone's way. Mm, I'm not sure oh, what that, that means. that sounds painful. Yeah. Oh, I'm not can convinced. Be. Not as painful as everything under the, uh, under the panel bench being crossed. Yeah. <laughs> sounds inordinately <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs> so, folks, we've got a host of a uh, massive group of guests to bring into the studio a little bit later. We're going to start off with some science news for you, though. Dr. Jen, what do you got? I want to talk about the pill, oh. which, you know, I think it's an important thing to discuss. Yes. Pretty, pretty major success story of modern medicine, widely available since the 1960s. Um, estimates are that around 100 million women around the world are taking the pill at the moment, and it's not just for preventing unwanted pregnancies. A lot of women also prescribe the pill for um, acne control, for if they suffer from really bad menstrual you know, cramps, pain. Mm. There's a lot of reasons why um, women are taking the pill, mm. but... What I learned this week, which I hadn't really thought about before, was that it was developed as an adult medication. Mm -hmm. We don't actually know that much about what it does to people who um, are teenagers. And so we know from animals that hormones like um, estrogen and progesterone can have a really big effect on the brain during puberty. So it would make sense that if you're taking the pill, which is um, which contains synthetic estrogen and or progesterone, depending on what what um, you know type of pill you're taking, that if teenagers are taking the pill during during this puberty period, it could have some pretty big effects. So there was a study that came out in 2016 um, of 1 million women in Denmark, and that showed very clearly that women who were on the pill were more likely to be suffering depression, um, which was a pretty important finding. But a study that came out this week, which I think is even more important, said, well, okay, so that's in the moment. If you're taking Mm, the pill, you are more likely to be experiencing depression. But what about in the future? So depending on what age you started taking the pill, um, what does that say for your mental health long term? And it was a it was a big study and it was well done and basically they found that so they compared women who'd either never taken the pill started taking the pill as a teenager or started taking the pill as an adult. And for those who'd started taking the pill as teenagers, um, 16% of them were suffering depression compared with women who'd started taking the pill as an adult, only 9%, mm. compared with women mm. who'd never taken the pill, only 6%. And the authors were very clear to say, of course, it's correlational. We're not saying that the pill is causing the depression, but they said we controlled for every variable we could possibly think of that could explain this link. And what it says is A, we need to have more conversations about teenagers starting the pill. Um, And secondly, we just need to do a lot more research to try and understand how these synthetic hormones are affecting Mm. um, brain development and mental health. Because if that's a real finding, and you know, to the best of their knowledge it is, that's really concerning that years down the track, um, women are much more prone to be um, dealing with mental health issues because of decisions they made in their teens. How do they define adult? 
Um, I think. Oh no, you're going to ask me if oh, number. Sorry. I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, I think it was probably um, twenty. It doesn't matter plus. really. I mean, obviously they've drawn a line somewhere. Mm. I'm, I'm just interested in because that's yeah. as you say, it's it's clearly to do with the way these hormones interact with their brains. Yep. So there's a lot of brain development going on in those teenage years, but Absolutely. at some point, and it's different for every person though. So I think I'm interested in where they sort of. Mm. So there, there's the normal line of distinction that will. Yeah. We'll carry on through. Yeah, I mean, they're really clear to say, you know, this is not the definitive study, but this is sure. a, one piece of a jigsaw puzzle that tells us we need to ask more questions and collect some more information about this. Mm. And t- certainly the interaction between our hormonal systems and our mental health is extremely strong. Absolutely. Mm. And, you know, it works both ways. You know, it works, works in both directions. But, you know, to, to not have that sort of data on something that has such a monstrous effect mm. on your hormonal system yep. seems... You know, oh well. Big concern. Yeah, maybe we should uh, look into that tobacco problem. You know, it's sort of like it could be a very, very big problem that Mm. we just don't know. I mean, the pharma companies, you know, just want to sell this stuff. So from their perspective, it's not, it's not a, um, there's no driver there for them to look into this. But uh, Mm. it's good that some of the researchers are. Yeah, and just the fact that, you know, it wasn't designed in the original stages Mm. to be taken by, you know, young women. Yeah. Well, I think, and to be fair, um, women do badly in in those situations across the board because so many biologics and different uh, medications are tested on you know male mice and so forth as mm, well. So you know exactly. there's there's such a, a lack of understanding of how the mm. female body interacts with many pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. And this one's designed specifically for women and yet we mm. still don't and, have a and you know of course we're the first to say we want women to have access to safe contraceptives, mm-hmm. no question. But we just yep. need to think about some of the other side effects yeah. too. Yeah. Good stuff. Well bad stuff, but thanks yeah. Jen. Interesting Very stuff. Very interesting stuff, yeah. <laughs> Chris KP? Uh, g'day, mate. Um, I, uh, <laughs> g'day. Nice to meet you. <laughs> for, for all our international <laughs> listeners, uh, Chris just said hello. It's a conventional greeting. Um, <laughs> although a very, very, a very retro one it's becoming, sadly. Yeah. I, uh, uh, so I, um, I wanted to talk about, um, just one little thing that appealed to me from the point of view of, um, it, to my mind, it's, it's headspace. It's the, and, and, and now I think about it, that might actually be a genius description, um, that I wish I could claim credit for. Because, you think about, you see things around you, whether you're a human or a scientist, um, and you, <laughs> or potentially both, possibly both, I suppose. And sometimes things just <laughs> things just put a pass you by, and other times they don't. Sometimes you catch on to something and you dig a bit deeper. Um, and and that moment of headspace can be extraordinarily important. Now there are some scientists in uh, in the US, uh, a few universities, who have challenged a bit of um, a dominant paradigm because someone had the headspace to go, hang on, we can actually study this. Now I, I'm I'm aware that most listeners probably don't have access currently to a T Rex skull, um, which is obviously sadly well, not. it's an oversight on their interior <laughs> decorating, I think. But the point is that they don't. But they probably do have access at least some point to a book or the internet, um, which will enable them to see a T-Rex skull, and I would urge them to do that um, when they get a moment. What you'll notice when you do look at this is that there are holes um, in, the, in the skull, like not eye holes, they're there too, and mouth holes, but they're just holes in the skull, mm. um, uh, which seems like, a, again, seems like an oversight on the part of the T-Rex, actually. Um, but th- for the longest time, the, the understanding has been that they're there as part of mm. uh, a musculature that connects to the jaw. Yep. And that's perfectly logical. Uh, and there are all kinds of complex muscle ligament relationships in, in, the, in the skulls of animals. However, um, the the uh, the scientists, particularly um, at the University of Florida, Missouri, um, and Ohio, sort of kept thinking hey, that that's okay, but 
the muscle line you're talking about is really complicated. Like, it goes through these weird sort of 90-degree bends. It just seems like a very inefficient way to use a jaw. Um, but we don't have a T-Rex to study, so maybe it's true. We don't really know. But then somebody went, hang on. We haven't got a T-Rex, but we do know of other animals that have holes in their skulls. Mm. Picture, if you will, University of Florida. You know, it's in Florida. Crocodiles? Alligators. Alligators. Yeah. So they then started looking at alligator skulls and, uh, in particular, as part of this, used thermal imaging and realised that the holes in their skull were very different colours, that is, very different levels of heat transfer at different times of the day. So when they're warming up, they're quite different to at the end of the day when they're kind of already warm and perhaps even wanted to cool down, depending on on the temperature. So these guys have now said, it makes much more sense that we imagine these holes in the T-Rex skull to be a, essentially what they've described as an air conditioner. Yep. It's basically an opportunity to thermoregulate. That makes much more sense because you can run blood vessels through there far more efficiently and easily, just like the alligators are still doing now. So but yeah, cool. Yeah, it's just cool, a moment literally. of going... Yes, exactly. <laughs> or warm, whatever suits you. But sure. yeah, there you go. So that's, that's a nice bit of um, capacity to think, hang on, wait a minute. And they're preparing us to do a couple of uh, a couple of experiments. Yeah, mm. that's cool stuff. It was interesting when I first saw that uh, particular article and it had that that description of a T Rex has an air conditioner yeah. in its head, and I was thinking, yeah. okay, let's read a bit <laughs> further because an air conditioner, you know, do you have a compressor? I did you know, the, like same, exactly I was the thinking, same thing. Exactly. Are we are we talking about a, an actual you know compressor and a, a you know refrigerated air conditioning, or are we talking about evaporative? Yeah, know, like a reverse you know, like cycle T Rex. In fact, the way you're describing it, it does sound more reverse it's cycle than just the, the one off. So, yeah. um, I thought, but it's interesting how quickly the, the general media will grab these things and chuck a yes, they will. chuck a label on it. And yeah. aircon is, um, you know, I mean, next thing we're gonna we're gonna hear is that they're also solar powered yeah um, because they're out in the sun and off grid and off grid yeah they're way off the grid so but it's a great story i love um it, it always fascinates me how we um yeah it's i think it's the decade of of um three things for me it's the decade of of you know really you know dinosaurs again mm-hmm. we've sort of you know that book of dinosaurs you had that had you know six in it well sorry we need to give you a new book because yeah. that book is <laughs> yeah, really out of there. there's yeah. so much more now we started investigating china and other other parts mm-hmm. of the world and you know as the greenland ice sheet sort of goes away you know we'll, we'll see all sorts of new things um scary whether we like them or not yeah, whether we <laughs> like them or not um you know there's immunology i think it's just yes. you know gone yes. through the roof but but also um for me the other one is the the sort of approaches to um uh neuroscience mm-hmm. and, and the way that's you know just heated up with functional MRI. Mm. You know, these three things for me are just—they've just exploded in the last ten years by by comparison to other yeah, fields, yeah. and they've just become huge. But yeah, the dinosaur stuff for me is um, you know amazing. It, it's it's just so much bigger, bigger, yeah. Yeah, and every time there's a big change, you know, like uh, you know the Brontosaurus being kicked out, and then yeah, sorry. You know, a few years later, sorry, apparently, we're apparently, back. Apparently, the Brontosaurus now lives with Pluto. Yeah, well, Pluto could become back. NASA put some oh, stuff know, out there. I, I saw that. that. You never know. Um, it's like John Barnum. Can you just retire? <laughs> No, the Pluto, the last time. The Pluto fans are getting excited. Yeah. I know. They want Pluto back. Because it could be coming back. Oh, people power. All those out-of-date T-shirts that people yeah. want to be able to wear again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we're back to 80s music. Yeah. Well, exactly. Think, yeah. Well, everything always comes back to 80s music. So. I, want, I want to get a, a T-shirt that has Pluto on it and, and then just Neil deGrasse Tyson on the other side, just <laughs> looking at Pluto like, you know, with a little tear. Because <laughs> yeah, he was one of the ones who you know, pushed it out of the... As a planet group, or giving it a death stare, one or the other. Yeah. <laughs> Which would be actually, might be easier to find that picture <laughs> online. We're printing them ourselves. Hey, uh, before we go to a break, folks, I just wanted to mention that um, you can still uh, still subscribe to Triple R during the Radiothon period, still going until the 25th of September. Um, and in fact, uh, 
every now and then I can still see that people are doing that because I have a little mm. magical screen here that I don't let Chris see. Um, but uh, we have a business subscription to the show this morning by Ooh. a business called Curio in Ivanhoe East. So thanks so How much, Curio, for, yeah, for doing that. I kind of want to look this business up because it sounds like it might sell cool stuff. I, um, I'm not sure. Uh, and my, my puppy got her first ever piece of uh, mail this week. Oh, yeah. She oh. got her new subscriber pack oh, from Triple R. haven't actually let her open it yet because uh. I'm figuring it's just going to end up with paper all over the house. Oh, so that came out already, did it? Yeah, she already got her new subscriber pack and you know she's never had a piece of mail before so I'm guessing she's going to be pretty excited I find that very surprising popular what? dog yeah. <laughs> on social media I'm very surprised well it's funny because I'm, I'm moving house soon and I and I put my new address in <gasps> in and so but I'm not there yet so the first thing that will appear there will be the oh, triple oh, R Mac that's but, but I'm not there yet so well, I'm yeah, not sure I'll right. get it <laughs> we'll see well, I can just sit yeah. there for a while it'll be fun triple Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3RRR. In the studio now, we have our first two guests for today from the School of Engineering at RMIT University. We have Kashaya Koshmanesh and Peter Thurgood. Welcome, guys. How are you going? Yeah, good, thanks. Thank you very much. Now, uh, Kashaya, have I, have I pronounced your name vaguely close? Uh, yes, but you can call me Cash. That's what people have called me over the past 10 years. Oh, really? Australia. Jeez, that sounds like sounds like they're not doing enough work for you. Um, let's let's talk about uh, what you're doing now because it's it's very interesting. You you've been um, doing a lot of this. What uh, people would have heard this term "lab on a chip" type work. Um, can you give us a bit of a sort of overview first up of what sort of you know labs are we talking about on the chip? Because there's a lot of different things we could we could put into that sort of silicon format. But specifically, what are you going after? Basically, we make organ on chips. Basically, we try to mimic body organs and body tissues using microfabrication and 3D printing technologies. Okay. What we do, we try to basically mimic the structural, physical, chemical, and biochemical properties of different body organs. Hmm. In specifically, we focus on body vessels. We, for example, make body vessels. We mimic the geometries. In terms of dimensions, curvatures, flow rates, pulsation frequencies, temperatures, wall stiffness, and uh, geometric complexities, mm. and try to understand the behavior of blood flow and blood cells within the blood vessels. Okay. So, I mean, Peter, in the you're, you're in the lab. You're, you're doing some of this stuff. I mean, what does this physically look like in the lab? Are we talking about actual sort of things like organoids, like mini organs or tissues on the chips, or, or are we sort of simulating those with other materials? Yeah, so we're usually sort of developing little devices that fit on sort of like a little glass slide, so about 75 millimetres by 25 millimetres, mm-hmm. and we build our structures into sort of different elastomers um, with different structures that we can then seed with cells and apply different flow rates and things like that to, you know, simulate, you know, physiological systems. Yeah. How do you get the, the cells and the, so the biological components to stay alive in those environments? Um, well, that's a, a complicated uh, sort of system, and we work with uh, biologists um, in the School of um, Health Sciences. Um, and, you know, it's about nutrients and fl- flow rate, temperature, and carbon dioxide, um, and each cell's different. They have different requirements of sort of flow rates and shear stresses mm. and things like that to keep them happy. Mm. And in terms of the the complexity of, of these devices, how complex can you get? Because I think when you when you consider the human body and just the the way, you know, there's often been this talk of systems engineering and actually how you can model the entire system. It's so complicated. Do do you do that on the chip or do you try and isolate one component, like say just a 
how the kidney functions or how our blood cell functions, or can you do that sort of integration? We can do both. What we do, we try to make simplified mer- versions of body organs. As you mentioned, for example, kidney is a very complicated organ. We try to simplify it by, for example, putting an array of microchannels and seeding cells around them in order to basically be able to visualize whatever hap- is happening there because you can imagine that if it's very complex and 3D, you cannot see what's going on. Mm. So basically we try as engineers, our job is to simplify everything, even body organs, so mm. that we can basically stimulate them as we wish, either physically or chemically, and then visualize them using different microscopic techniques. Yeah. Well, one of the things I find really exciting about this work, which was in the, the materials you both sent through, was the idea that you, this could, at some stage, replace the use of animal models, you know, which is something we'd all like to to see. Of course, I mean, there's a there's a necessary requirement there. If, you know, anyone who's taken Panadol has benefited from you know animal models at some stage. So we're all, we're kind of all in that bucket. Um, but being able to move away from that is a really important step. How close are we with some of these chips to being able to do that? I would say if you're already there. That's a matter of when, basically, these technologies will be embraced by the biomedical industry. Mm. Um, if you want, I can tell what are the barriers between us and that point when the biomedical industry very happily will embrace these technologies. Yeah. You know what? Um, first of all, these technologies are small as Peter suggested they are very little. You can imagine that as large as your credit card. However, in order to operate them, you rely on big machines, right? So even if I give you a small machine, this small machine relies on large machinery. Therefore, one of the big barriers that has been the focus of my research group over the past five years has to be breaking this barrier in terms of developing self-sufficient microfluidic systems. Mm. The ones that are standalone, and the whole system is like a shoebox, including pumps, heaters, centrifugal systems, right. incubators, and so on. And is it cheaper than the mouse? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that, you know, when yeah, the pharma companies are looking at this, they want it to be cheaper than the mouse. So along those lines, I'm interested in, um, so there's a, there's a lot behind it in terms of the hardware and the software, and on the assumption that you guys are really good at what you do, um, the, we're going to get great understandings about how organs both operate and, and interoperate, I guess. To what extent can that knowledge be extended into an entirely virtual system? Can we, when can we give up part of the hardware and go, okay, we can just pump the information into the computer and get an answer? Um, basically, we are there because, as I mentioned, the technologies that we make are very simplified versions of body organs. But you can imagine that the simplest things that happen in your body is the basically product of 20 different yes. processes. But what if we develop a machine that we can do it one by one or, or any arbitrary combination? Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. So obviously um, it's very exciting to think that we could move away from from so many animal models, but I'm also interested, do you think these could play an important role in teaching? Could they be really important teaching devices? Absolutely. That's a very good question because obviously you cannot take mice to the classroom and even if you take them, it's very hard to handle them, operate them and so on. But these machines, we can easily take them to our classrooms. And for your information, that's exactly what I have been doing over the past three years in my lab on course at RMIT University. 
mean? Of course, we don't, you know, mimic cancer in the classroom, but we teach them how you can basically model any sort of diseases in a simple mm. chip. Mm. It's nice stuff. Now, Peter, in terms of the, uh, the, the design and makeup of these, I, I mean, often in university laboratory environments, someone will come in and say, here's one. Look at how good it is. It took me a year to make it. But, you know, for this to be a, a viable technology, um, you need to be able to make them on, on, in the bulk. How, how hard is it to do that at the moment? Like a basic microfluidic. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, can you make many of them, or yeah, is it something? Yeah, you can make that... them uh, quite, like in quite a parallel manner. Yeah. Um, I think you, they're compatible with mass fabrication, um, and they're sort of, oh, like we build sort of prototypey sort of style ones with sort of for research tools. Mm. But there's nothing special about the way we do that that couldn't be used. You know, couldn't be integrated with like injection molding or you know, right, really yeah. mass fabrication. Yeah, and in terms of the the fluidics, I mean, we we sort of throw words out like microfluidics all the time, but fluids and their flow work differently when you get down to certain sizes. Yep. So as you as you make these things smaller and smaller, you have to take into account different dynamics and different ways in which fluid flow works. Is that uh, do, you, do you mimic the body in that regard? Is that is that part of what the sort of design is there to do, to actually say, okay, in the body, these channels are really small. You can't just pretend they're large because everything works differently. Yeah. Does, is, that, is that what's happening in these devices? Yeah, we sort of certainly have to design sort of structures to be very precise in their geometries and mm. sort of flow rates and, and stuff like that to really mimic, like, what, say, endothelial cells on the inside of your blood vessels would behave they behave very differently under different sort of flow conditions and you really can't just go, oh, this will be close enough. Like mm. they will completely misbehave if, um, if it's slightly wrong. And, and you can model that kind of stuff by, say, making, um, you know, incorrect structures in a channel and seeding them with these cells. And then you might have like a stenosis, you know, like a, you know, like heart disease kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Yep. And you'll get, you know, strange sort of vortex flows around after those and, the, the disturbed flow across those cells is what leads to, you know, the breakdown of the cell, of like the, the vessel itself. Right. So we can sort of model that kind of stuff. Yeah, I can imagine things, areas like clotting and, and all sorts of areas yeah, where, and, and determining where that would occur, um, yeah. being able to model this effectively must play into that in a major way. Yeah, sure. Mm. And then you build these models and you can potentially, you know, uh, treat these cells or, you know, cell lo- layers with, you know, different drugs and say, you know, how will this respond yeah. uh, differently in this case, which mm. I think is really valuable. Well, guys, look, it's super interesting stuff. Um, we're going to end now because we're, we've got a lot of guests today, um, but uh, really interesting. It'd be fantastic to see this progressing. It's great to see it's being used in the teaching scenario, but uh, getting it into the space where, um, you know, all... All of these sorts of, uh, you know, tests and so forth we do could be done, you know, faster, better, cheaper, and without the use of animals uh, at all. Um, sounds fantastic to me. So thanks so much for coming in and chatting on Einstein the Gaga. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Three. Triple. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gaga on 3 Triple R. We're having a bit of fun here in the studio. With us now are two researchers from Deakin University. It's, uh, first of all, we've got Dr. Ludovic Dome. Am I close? Yep, very oh, close. Very good. And Marie Onfren. Did I get it close, Marie? Yeah, not too bad. <laughs> tell you what, we've got, we've got the most awesome names today. I just, I I just think that was a very polite yes. Yeah, name. it was. <laughs> Chris KP has given me grief about this all day. Marie, um, no need to be polite with us. Yeah, okay. no, this is uh, community radio. You can say whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Just uh, keep the F-bombs to a minimum because there are children listening. Now, you are both working in... 
in this area that I think a lot of people have heard of, and it's one that's you know really quite scary actually, and that's the issue of finding plastics or microplastics or nanoplastics in our water systems. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of Marie, can you give us a bit of a an overview before we get onto your actual research of what scale of sort of problem do we have here internationally in terms of you know we're we're not sort of thinking about you know components like you know, wheels of plastic kids' bikes ending up in the ocean. We're talking about something very different. Yes, yeah, so the main problem is um, microplastic or nanoplastic, as you said, are really, really small. Mm-hmm. It can be, for instance, as small as a thousandth of a hair thickness. Mm-hmm. So it's completely invisible to the human eye. Yeah. And current techniques are not accurate enough to detect these particles in real water samples. So what we are able to measure are the largest particles, mm-hmm. but not the smallest. So we don't know the exact, the exact concentration right. uh, that are present in water. So we don't know what is, for instance, um, in tap water, uh, what is the real, am- the real amount. Um, and this poses a problem to our own health because we don't know how many we are really ingesting and breathing and drinking. Yeah. And what, what does the human body do with microplastics when we ingest it, for example? I mean, for me, if it's something that, you know, comes in and goes out, I'm not so worried. But if it's something that goes in and stays in, I'm a little bit more concerned. So this is a big problem uh, because many studies have been, have been done on animals like mm. mussels, plankton, shrimps, uh, but on humans, none has been done so far. So um, maybe they're going through and in and out, no problem. Yep. Maybe they're accumulating our own body, which can be uh, concerning if they can damage tissues and stuff like this. But the main problem is we know uh, toxic chemicals can be absorbed onto their surface. Yep. And this one can be released in our own body. Uh, so yes. they can act as carrier of mm. even more toxic chemicals that we know as bisphenol A or heavy metals or uh, pesticides that we know are toxic for us. Yeah. But yeah. so far there are no evidence of um, these, plas- these uh, chemicals being transported into our own body by plastic particles. Yeah. But it's the main threat. Well, one of the things I find fascinating here is we use the term plastic. But this covers a monstrous range of types of materials, both in terms of density and function. Is there a sort of some that are worse than others? I mean, what what do we do there in terms of looking at just the sheer range of materials? I mean, plastic seems like one word for one thing, but it's extensive. Yeah, so when we work on plastic, we have to separate them in terms of, um, as you said, type of materials, then shape like fibers, for instance, mm-hmm. would behave much differently than fragments uh, yep. in water. Um, and, of course, the size. And then when you look at the water samples, the concentration at the top surface would be different at, at the and shallow waters, for instance. Mm-hmm. And depending on the composition of water, again, the, compos- the concentration of plastic would be different, depending on the density of the plastic, depending on the shape, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, wow. So we have to be precise on everything. But Ludovica, I want to ask you some questions, but your student here is doing so well. <laughs> so very good explanations. In, in terms of the... Um, the sort of way in which these materials break down. Do we have a good understanding for that in the waterways? Do they do they break down at all? That's a very good question, in fact, because lots of the um, plastic being released in the ocean over rivers, mm. uh, we know they are aging because of um, potential bioactivity, sunlight, or other types of you know potential yep. degradation pathways. But there is very little which has been demonstrated um, beyond the fact that, yes, UV, for instance, can actually break them down. What we know is that they have been found in uh, some fish, shellfish, mm. and, and so on. So they are 
present already there in, in that sense. But it's, um, I guess the key message there is that there's a lot of different uh, pathways that can lead to their degradation. And also because some, um, you have lots of composite materials being used right now in products, even like, um, uh, labels, coatings on, on, you know, mm. cans and so on. All these guys are going to degrade at some point. And, and some of the recycling pathways will help support that. But actually other types of, um, what, whatever is actually being recycled but disposed will definitely lead to some contamination and to some, you know, release of plastics in that sense. Yeah. Uh, Marie, when, when you look at this and, and you look at these materials, I mean, when you say nanoplastics, I mean, my old area of physics was a lot of nanoimaging. And one of the things that, you know, is, is difficult there, of course, is that most even microscopes, normal microscopes can't see this stuff. So what does that mean in terms of processing, water treatment, all of that sort of stuff where these, these materials are clearly going to run through many of the membranes and so forth that we use to clean up our water? Um, you know, that might, those membranes might be good for kangaroo poo, you know, <laughs> going into our reservoirs, yeah. but I don't know about nanoplastics. What's, what's the story of that? So, that's what I'm working on now, is trying to um, improve filtration, uh, current filtration membrane that we use to produce the cream water uh, so that they can um, uh, trap these nanoparticles instead of going through the membranes. Mm-hmm. Um, because since they're so small, they will go through everything. Yeah. So the idea that we are developing is to... Um, concentrate them uh, into another flow and that we can recycle them in another way afterwards. Because the main point of, of doing this is even if you remove this nanoplastic from water, what do we do with it afterwards? Yeah. Yeah. So the other side of the project is this, is to find a way to recycle them and to re-inject them, re-inject them into this um, sustainable way in order to form a kind of a circular economy uh, and to reduce the amount of plastic we actually consume. Yeah. yeah. I'm interested in, um, in, so as Shane's saying, these are, these are things that are so small they, they can't be seen, mm. but we, I guess we know they're there. Uh, h- how do we know? I mean, if you, you were saying earlier that we have no way of measuring this, so how would you go about that? Is it a chemical measurement? How do you even know? It's not that we don't know. It's that on real water samples, it takes a lot of effort to find them, but we can do it. How? We have, we have the equipment. So for instance, what I'm doing is a nanoparticle tracking analysis, which measures the scattering of these nanoparticles ah. with light. Yep. And then the microscope just catches the light that is scattered and is able to count every dot that is appearing on the screen. Mm, so then I'm nice. able to count the particles and to measure the particles. And this equipment is really good because it goes down to 10 nanometer in size, wow. which is basically like yeah, na- yeah. nanometer size. Yeah. But this is really sensitive to impurities. So in order to use the equipment, I need to purify my sample. So a bit of muddy river water is not going to cut it. It can work, but I need to treat it uh, a lot before sure. being yeah, able to sure, use sure. it. Yeah. So it's possible to detect them. Yep. So I know that you're specifically interested in microplastics and nanoplastics in water, but I'm aware that um, you know plastics in air is also a really big problem. There was a news story not that long ago that mm. these mountains that we think of mm. as so remote and so pristine, we've actually got microplastics blowing in there. Mm. Are the technologies that you're working on, do they have any uh, applicability to microplastics in air? Um, I guess to an extent, yes, because we are developing m- membranes for air filtration as well at Deakin. We are primarily focused right now with the CSIRO in Geelong on virus capture and pollen capture, but the materials we are developing are also very relevant for such particles. I think 
the extent of the concentrations of microplastics in air is even lower than what we can expect in water. But, but you're right, it has been, they have been found, you know, to actually stem back in clouds and then, mm-hmm. you know, um, so there's a lot of, um, of, of work that can be done on enhancing the capture in that aspect and some of the things we are doing at, in, in the kin, at, at, in general in that sense, yes, mm-hmm. definitely. Just following on to that, I mean, and this question comes from someone who is not a chemist. In fact, I'm probably the furthest thing from a chemist you could get. Um, but when you get down to these sizes of 5 to 10 nanometers, is it still a plastic at that point? I mean, it sounds like the, the molecules have been broken down so far. Yep. You don't have any long-chain molecules. You don't have any, um, I think they're called polymers. Um, basically, you, know, you, you have these, these little bits. You like these big words? Um, uh, you have all these, you know, these little bits or ends of molecules. I mean, are they still even plastics at that point what are they i think i think you're right i mean the surface to volume ratio is becoming huge in that sense so obviously you know we have to look at them from a dimension size like a point of view and we can detect them down to 10 inch nanometer or even less with tem if we have to go this way um but at the end of the day i think the um, the key message that yeah we have lots of functional groups available on the surface of the plastics yep. and this will affect a lot the behavior so if we have a polyethylene or polyethylene terephthalate, like plastic bottles or, or mm-hmm. plastic bags type materials. Obviously, as a bulk, they would behave very differently to what we can expect at that scale. Yeah. And, and when, when you, you know, coming back, Marie, to your idea of filtration, uh, you know, to me, you're getting to the point where you're almost at the atomic scale, where you're, you know, having things that might be something like a, a, a carbon lattice that has a missing carbon atom and that's the filtration point. I mean, how do you, how do you filter stuff at five to ten nanometers? Um, so the, what I'm doing is actually changing the surface charge of the membrane I use mm-hmm. to turn it uh, negatively charged, yep. which is the same as the plastic particles in water. Right. So I'm not targeting pore size like yep. smaller than 10 nanometers. Yep. I'm targeting uh, a surface chemistry that is uh, that will repel the particles when they approach the membrane so they can be repelled from it. Because, of course, if I want to go down to 10 nanometer or lower than that, I have to switch to another type of membrane, um, which is nanofiltration, reverse osmosis, or graphene-based mm. membrane or other type of membrane. Mm. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that sounds um, <coughs> chemically complicated. Which, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the only way. You know, yes. I, as a physics guy, it's like, you know, if you can do it with holes, that's going to work. Mm-hmm. But let's use some functional groups. That would be smart. Um, in terms of the, the penetration of these plastics into the environment, mm. have we have we got a feel for how far that's gone at this point? I mean, I can see rivers to me are sort of like, the early stage stuff, but like, have we got samples from, you know, the deeper parts of our oceans and so forth? Are we seeing, I mean, I know some of them probably float, but I assume a lot of them also descend. Do we know how far we've penetrated into some of these environments? I think, yeah, I mean, some reports of submarines looking at uh, the Marianne, you know. Um, Marianne Trench, the yeah. Trench. Yeah. They found some plastic bags and stuff in there. Very, oh, wow. very low content compared <laughs> yeah. to. But um, even I think in the um, the Caribbean, they actually were mapping down. And they also found like up to two or 3,000 meters down below wow. um, the sea yeah. or some plastic components. So at the moment, the penetration is quite high. Mm-hmm. Obviously, um, you know, the type of plastic, like you said, some we float, some we sink. So the content, what we have there might be different based on, mm. on, on the current as well, on the ocean currents we, we have in that sense. Yeah. And you mentioned the airflow stuff. It, it, there are a number of researchers who look at the contamination on the Antarctic sites as a result of the Northern Hemisphere. Mm. Uh, have they, I mean, this may not have been done yet, but there are any examples of microplastics being found in Antarctica at this point? 
I'm, I'm not sure myself about that. I haven't seen any studies on, on, on yeah. Antarctic. Yeah. Jen's going there soon. She can get you some samples. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bring back some ice. Yeah. Sure, no probs. No probs? Just, just in my hand luggage. Yeah, yeah, should be cool. Um, it's very small hand luggage. They're microplastics. They're microplastics. <laughs> <laughs> you just get a little thimble and fill it up. Um, folks, look, this has been great talking to you about this because this is something I think we, we hear about these plastics mm. all the time. And the idea of us turning on the tap at home and, you know, or even I, I suspect – um, or actually, one more question before you go. So if I get a bottle of, a plastic bottle of water, does that leach microplastics into the water? Can you, is that, is that something that's happening? Yes. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Jeez. So, that was a scary um, yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, no, so you have different type of leakage. You can come from the lid, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. When you open it, you, no, know, you break it. You break, break it. Yep, sure. Um, and also from the very inside uh, of the plastic bottle, once yeah. you put the water in, you can have leakage. And then the water that is uh, sought from instant mountain reserves yep. contains already has it. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. well, enjoy, folks. Enjoy your um, <laughs> bottle of water. Uh, it's going to be great. Thank you both for coming in. This is uh, such an important topic. It's great to see that Deacon's on this, and um, yeah. you know we're doing this research here. On that, I wanted to mention uh, my PhD is this uh, John PhD with Surrey University in yep. UK. Cool. Uh, and I'm working with uh, Judy Lee, my supervisor there in London. So, uh, Fantastic. So I to mention that. Yeah, ask her about the cricket every other day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. Uh, thanks both for coming in because it really is a great topic. And I think um, the more we learn about this, the better. And it's, it's a bit scary, but it's important to investigate. 102.7. There you are listening to Triple R in there. Just a quick big thank you to Dali Bravo, who has subscribed to the Graveyarders, and also to Paul Redshaw, who has subscribed to Einstein and Gogo. Woohoo! Yeah, it's really nice. Paul is from uh, Marysville, and for local Marysville people, they will know I'm the crazy person who goes and buys Neenish tarts there at 7 a.m. on a Saturday (laughs) morning. They have the best Neenish tarts in in the state. So tasty. (sighs) So bad. So I'm, uh, I'm upset by it now because <laughs> I need one. Uh, in the studio with us now, though, is Professor Maria Pia Degli-Aposti um, from the Monash Biomedicine Discovery Institute. Uh, Maria Pia, how are you going? Well, thank you. Good morning. Uh, look, it's great to have you in. Now, we should start with the fact that uh, congratulations, I guess, because your team won the award we- recently. What was that? We did. We won um, the Eureka Prize for Scientific Research, which was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. We- are thrilled. Yeah, I mean, this is not a minor thing. One of our team mm. members, uh, we we also announced um, Laura McKay won one uh, one as well. These are these are massive, you know, accolades. So congratulations on that. It's fantastic. Thanks, now, Julian. Let's um let's learn a little bit about um your your work though, because one of the areas that I think is people probably aren't that aware of this, but when people have transplants, whether it be stem cells or bone marrow or other things, there are some nasty viruses that creep in. Can you tell us what's going on there? Yeah, so um, when our immune system is non-functional because um, in the case of transplantation, because we've actually suppressed the immune system for reasons mm. that I'll tell you more about, then we really put a risk of not dealing with what our immune system normally deals with, which is infections. Um, the infections that um, transplant patients have to deal with are numerous, so they're ones that they can acquire as first-time infections, mm-hmm. or in the case of the work that we do, they're infections that actually live with us. So the one that we're really interested in is a virus that um, most of us have. So um, the incidence is about 80% of the population carries okay. this virus called cytomegalovirus. If you're immunosuppressed, um, the virus reactivates. So the virus is normally dormant after the 
first infection, doesn't cause any problems. If your immune system is not there to keep it under control, it comes back, it reemerges, and it can cause disease. And this is what the problem is in transplantation. Wow. And, and in terms of this virus, I mean, where do we, where do we get it? Where do we get exposed in the first instance? So because it's so common, um, you know, you, you have many chances to get exposed to it. It's transmitted in um, secretions, mostly saliva, urine, uh, breast milk um, also. Most people are actually infected during childhood, so the largest percentage of the population is shown as having been infected by the virus by um, teenage years. By the time you're over 40, then it's where we see that 80% of the population carrying the virus. Yeah. So it's when you're in contact with secretions. Yeah, yeah well, you know, sweaty soccer games. Kind of, yeah. um, this, this sounds to me, it, it always fascinates me where some viruses are really great at maintaining themselves mm. in the environment and others are not. So Ebola, although it's deadly, is not great at spreading itself and it kills people too quickly and, you know, it's not, it's not really as transmitted as something like the flu. This sounds like a fan, you know, dare I say, a fantastic yeah. virus if it's got 80% coverage, no one's dying of it, and it just keeps get, getting past Yes, on. it's well, it's actually, this is why it's also so interesting for an immunologist mm. to use this type of virus, because we actually use it also as a means to understand our immune system is at this continuous, um, in this continuous balance with this virus. So evolutionarily, the virus is actually found in most species. Yeah, right. Um, if it is a mouse <coughs> cytomegalovirus, it will not infect a human. If it is a human cytomegalovirus, it will not infect a mouse, but each species has got their own cytomegalovirus. Mm. And evolutionally, they've been maintained because they're so good at working with or hiding from the immune system. Yeah, yeah. Now, if if I get a, a transplant and my immune system is compromised, you know, well, deliberately, you know, switched off yep. in that sense uh, in order to make that transplant work because my body has to take on foreign cells, what, what does this virus do to me? What's the impact of this virus? So um, if the virus reactivates, it can cause quite a lot of disease if it's not kept in check by antivirals, for example, which will be your first line of defense mm. if you don't have an immune system. Um, so patients with both solid organs or marrow or hematopoietic stem cell transplants will be put on antiviral drugs. If the mm. virus comes back, the virus actually causes disease, and it's really not clear at the moment whether it's the virus per se that causes disease or whether it might be some of the immune response to the virus that is also causing disease. Um, but most often you get pneumonitis, so pneumonia, um, you get gastrointestinal problems, and those are really the most severe complications that can cause mortality mm. in some cases. Mm. So, so my, my understanding is the reason you're on um, on those those drugs after a transplant is because you don't want your body to have an immune response to the new organ. Is there's clearly you know there must be some difference, at least in my head, there's some difference between you know an organ and a cytomegalovirus. For example, so how, how can we how can we convince the body that there's a difference? How do we go about that? <laughs> um, it would be great if we could convince the body that there is a difference. <laughs> okay. The problem is that these viruses are so well adapted to deal with immune response. So they're hiding away and they're always playing with our immune system. And so, you know, tumors, for example, in fact, we're finding are behaving like these viruses. In fact, you know, the biggest change in cancer treatment, immunotherapy, those really big changes, those checkpoint inhibitors type therapies have all come out of insights that we got from this type of infections. Because these viruses are actually... 
tweaking our immune system, tweaking, you know, the way they interact. And, have, and in the case of cytomegalovirus, there's been an evolutionary process where the virus mm. has been able to do so. So it's not easy. Um, antivirals really so far are the best way until our immune system comes yeah, back okay. to mm. deal with the viruses, which is what our research was it- Focusing on. Yeah, I mean, we didn't evolve to have um, stem cell transplants. Um, or, you know, <laughs> like this wasn't something in their evolution. Is this a virus that, you know, in a sense helps train our immune system? It sounds like one that's fairly benign for, for the most part for the population. So there are um, some school of thoughts that actually say that the virus is actually beneficial and that mm. you actually might respond to some challenges better. Certainly, um, you know, you wouldn't have kept this virus evolution if there wasn't some benefit. Obviously, now that our um, lifespan is much longer, the fact mm. that, you know, we can get transplants, um, we can get all these therapies, these viruses are coming out as potentially not being beneficial. So this um, but there's still a school of thought that actually says that cytomegalovirus might actually improve some of um, your immune responses Mm. and there are other school of thoughts and backed by data in both cases but the evidence still needs to be looked at Mm. more carefully. They say that in fact um, it's terrible for aging so you know, inflammation might be caused by these viruses and something that we're really um, interested in looking at as well. Yeah, look, it's fascinating because, you know, the moment you hear the word virus, you think negativity, you know, this yeah. is bad. But but in, in many cases, it, it may, you know, they're so integrated into our biological systems yeah. and we and we walk around and we live them. You know, and I'm guessing, you know, in this room there are four of us and we probably all have it. Yeah. Um, and it's not a doesn't crop up as a problem until no. until later. In in terms of you, you mentioned antivirals, is this the the standard process? So in when you when you give someone a transplant or or um, have any sort of procedure where the immune system is suppressed, um, ha, you, I'm assuming you monitor for this yes. virus and then antivirals is the, the way to go. So yes, so the standard therapy is antiviral therapy, and normally you give you monitor and you give it as soon as you see virus coming back. There are some new therapeutic approaches now that actually give it uh, prophylactically so beforehand mm-hmm. and these drugs are actually meant to be more helpful um, the data initially looked fantastic it's still it's unclear whether in fact long term um, it is so fantastic these viruses are tricky so they yeah. actually develop um, viral resistance very quickly so you might actually keep them under control for a bit but then you're actually developing resistance and the virus mm. will pop up yeah. at some other time so. and I, I suppose you just you know the antivirals are one thing but the complexity of the human immune system and its ability to deal with it can't be matched. No, so what we're really trying to do um, to improve it is to actually go to actually reconstitute um, the immune responses that we know will keep the virus under control and um, that was what our research was all about. It's it's fascinating stuff. Um, I wish we had more time to talk about it actually, Mm. but uh, Mary P, we're out out of time. Um, Good luck with this ongoing work though. I think this uh, this and many, you know, hepatic virus Viruses, all sorts of different viruses have this thing of being able to hide, just hang around and avoid, avoid us going after them. Um, you know, HIV is another great example of, you know, viruses that are really good at hiding. But um, it's good that this is going on down there at Monash. Thanks so much for coming in and congratulations again much. on that fantastic award. Thank it's you. a huge accolade. Well Thanks done. a million.
Folks, uh, we're almost out of time. Dr. Jen, Chris KP, a big thank you to the people who have subscribed during the show. You can still do that. Um, the Radiothon, although it has its sort of what we would call a loud period, what I call a loud period, where we all get to come in and have fun with 80s music, um, it does go for more than a month, and it's still open until 5 p.m. on Wednesday, the 25th of September, which is just a week or so away. I think a couple and of weeks away. there are so many good prizes yeah, to win. Yeah, you don't have to subscribe during the Radiothon for this, so um, uh, that's something you can still do. So if you want to do that, get online and subscribe to Triple R. We would very much appreciate your support. Until next week, I'm Dr. Shane. Uh, Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic weekend, and we'll give you more science next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einsteiner Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.